Well, so today we're joined by Corporal John McDonald uh, from the Maine Wardens Association, um, or Maine, Maine Wardens, I guess uh, that's that's the way we say it. Yep. Um, he's, he's spent 23 years, uh, really 25, because he spent a couple years uh, training uh, as a Maine Warden, and uh, he's seen everything up and down from uh, being in the field for a long time to uh, working as a public public information officer. Um, and one of the things that, you know, he's really known for is, uh, is um, Northwood's Law, which is an Animal Planet show that ran for many seasons um, and really sort of changed the face of, of how we view the warden service. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to share some stories and, uh, you know, welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you very much, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, uh, you know, talk a little bit about sort of what inspired you to uh, to join the warden service in the first place. Um, you know, it, it's one that many people don't know, but uh, it can be a very dangerous occupation. Um, it's not all just uh, out there uh, communing with the animals. It's actually a lot more complex than that, as we'll get into. Yeah, no, that's a it's a loaded question because um, my upbringing was probably my training for becoming a game warden, and I didn't know it. Uh, my family, my uncles, brother, you know, dad, uh, mother, really, every we we spent our time a good part of our time vacationing in the Maine outdoors, and um, you know, hunting and fishing, and I had some snowmobiles growing up, even as early as in the, the late seventies. ATVs, three-wheelers back in the 80s, and boating, you know, so canoeing. We did a fair amount of canoeing and motorboating and things like that. So as I entered into the workforce and got, you know, finished up with high school, uh, I honestly at that time didn't really know what I wanted to do for sure. I knew, was quite sure anyway, I wanted to have something that pertained to the outdoors. I wanted to be involved in the outdoors. So I got my guide's license, my main hunting guide's license when I was 18 which um, wasn't something I, I never did as a profession, but I knew it was something that uh, could be a possibility and it, it might get sure. endorsed. And along with that, when I was about 17, 18, I started to go for my pilot's license and got my solo license when I was 18 and started to fly. And, and then it, um, you know, things evolved. They didn't go right to college immediately. I chose to work for a few years and, and save some money, try to figure out what it was that I wanted to do uh, with the encouragement of my father and mother and, and, um, was accepted at a few places, but uh, were, yeah. were, were you in Maine? Was all this in Maine? Yeah. yeah, I grew up in Maine. I grew up about 20 minutes from where I am right now. No kidding. So I was lucky to kind of get right back home. But uh, as things evolved, um, I knew I didn't want to be a guide myself. I, it, uh, I think I enjoyed doing those things myself. And I didn't at that time as a young adult, I guess, uh, probably wasn't quite ready really to guide people out into the woods. So I did a bunch of different ventures, really. I uh, I had held some pretty normal jobs, customer service managers at places. I was a mason, you know, built chimneys and, you know, did all kinds of things. But uh, this one thing probably steered me the most. Uh, I had a friend that was in the warden service and he says, hey, John, I know you. He says, uh, and what you like to do. He says, you got to try this game warden thing out and try to get him with a game warden, go for a ride along. So 
I did that, and it, it sounds easy, but it took probably six or eight months to get a game warden to call me back. And knowing what I know now, you know, you have to kind of be the squeaky wheel uh, in order to get into a truck with a game warden, especially now with COVID, which sure. we really aren't doing, but uh, we hopefully will again soon. So anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm a gearhead. I like things with motors and wheels. I always have. And uh, this game warden picked me up in 1994 or five in a prototype General Motors truck because we used to test vehicles for General Motors. And oh, that's is, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so he picks right. me up. There, there's a bonus for any of you thinking about joining the warden service. You yeah, get yeah. to prototype new vehicles. Wow, yeah. that's a that's a great bonus. Yeah. I don't know as we still do that. I haven't seen that for a while, but um, maybe we tested them too well and maybe we built <laughs> them. But uh, so anyway, he picks me up in this diesel pickup truck before the Duramaxes had come out. And that's what it was. It was a Duramax diesel, and he had a new snowmobile in the back, or it looked new to me. So instantly, I'm like, this job is awesome. And we, <laughs> spent, we spent the day, you know, checking snowmobiles and ice fishermen and, and just having a great time. And we hit it off well and, you know, became friendly. So that was really the aha moment for me. And, you know, there's a whole heck of a lot more to it than that. But that was my... Uh, that was the beginning. And gotcha. uh, so it was from there on, it was just schooling that I chose to go to a community college. I worked during the day, went to school at night, paid for it myself. Um, so I didn't have any college loans and um, tried a few times initially when I was brand new at the whole game warden thing, didn't pass the exams. But when I was 24, I, I took it uh, and I said, you know what, this is it for me. I'm, I'm going to get it this time. And, and things so worked out. So are the exams, are they, um, is there a physical component or is it, is it all just uh, uh, book work? And what are the type of things? It sounds like it, it's not an easy test. It's not. I, I, I've been a recruiter for us too for about 10 years, kind of the department's recruiter, the one that captures most of that, those types of calls. And it's changed for us pretty dramatically in the last, since I've been a game warden. The, the hiring process is different and quite fact. Frankly, it's it's better now. Um, anyone that wanted to apply to be a game warden when I got hired back in 1996 or so, seven in that era and beyond and before that, um, you really just had to show up and take a written exam. Those were held on one particular day or sometimes a couple different days. And you would go to like an armory and there would be right. hundreds and hundreds of people in these armories taking this game warden written exam. And I remember when I got hired, there was about a thousand people that applied and they were wow. looking for just a handful of us. So me as a young person, pretty young back then, early 20s, walking into an armory with hundreds of people, I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get this job. <laughs> um, and I was only in one of three test facilities that day. No kidding. So, uh, anyway, that's how it began back then. Things are different now. You have to jump through different hoops in order to even get to a point where you can take a test. So um, it's it's more streamlined. We capture the better candidates quicker in this right. process. But we're still down on applicants compared to where we used to. If we get 100 applicants now, we're lucky. Wow. And So what 100 applicants for, for one position? Well, for positions, period. For positions, we, wow. Yeah, okay. we, we generally try to hire when we need at least a handful, three, four, five, six positions right. uh, to make the testing process worth 
our time. If we only had one vacancy, it, there's, there's so much, there's so many logistics that go into getting hiring panels and sure. everything that goes along with hiring. To do it for one person probably isn't worth it. So we wait to have five or six people or vacancies. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and once someone, you know, does does sort of make the cut and is hired on, um, you know, how long does it take to train them in, in everything from how to use the equipment to, you know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, everything from, you know, from firearms, um, you know, I mean, you've got a lot of duties that are similar to to, to what a, a law for any sort of law enforcement would have. But then you also have that added element of having to um, deal with wildlife. Um, right. and, 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 you know, I mean, I, I, I'm sure this is a loaded question, but uh, what is easier to deal with, um, you know, the human element or the wildlife element? Wildlife is much more predictable. And <laughs> um, of course it is. <laughs> and, um, but honestly, you know, we, we don't deal a lot with what well, we do and we don't. Uh, there's not a lot of hands on wildlife management for us um in terms of you know saving the injured loons or the the deer and the moose and things like that I and mean, we have real rehabilitators we have people that uh work in a contract you know almost a business capacity that deals with human wildlife conflicts we triage a lot of those calls you know and we actually respond to a fair amount of them too still but um so it's it's much more people management than it really is fish and wildlife management. It's it's managing the people that enjoy the outdoors is the majority of our work. So you know, people that buy hunting and fishing licenses and boat and snowmobile, ATV, kayak, hike, especially when they get injured hiking or need to be rescued hiking. Sure. And, um, and all the search and rescue in the state is falls under our jurisdiction, whether people want to be found or not. In some cases, you know, with uh, right, right, you know, a few years and things. So, yeah, right, but, right. It's so, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was gonna say, so we're, we're, you know, we're in the, the mid 90s. Um, you're just, uh, they just sort of uh, pin your badge on you and, uh, and training begins. Uh, where did you have a partner or train with someone for a while? And how long does that, that does that last? Or um, I was just actually telling the story uh, this morning or rehashing the story this morning of like, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I worked as a, a, a guide in the bush in Alaska. And I show up and they say, well, here's your shotgun and here's your jet sled. Now get to it. So there wasn't a lot of training. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I'd imagine there, there had to be a little bit more training, uh, you know, when you have to deal with these conflicts. There's a lot of training for us. Uh, I would dare say we're probably the have received more training than, than nearly any law enforcement officer in, in the country, as far as I'm aware of, at least in similar capacities to us. And it, that's a good thing because I think 50, 60 years ago, there was probably a lack of training in, in many areas that were critically important. And um, so, you know, the, the hiring process is extensive, at least to capture the people that we feel are best suited for the work. That that process in and of itself is about a six month period of, you know, if if you submitted an application to us today, Peter, the likelihood, you know, if you navigated through the hiring process and were successful during the whole thing, it would take about six months to navigate that. If you were successful for the colonel to finally say, okay, Peter, congratulations, you're a game warden. 
Now, there's, there's several phases within that. There's written exams, like we talked about. There's oral boards, background investigations, polygraph examinations, psychological, you know. Wow, it, polygraphs. Yeah, no yeah, yeah. And at each one of those phases, if you fail, you're, you're done for the, that process. You can reapply at some point. Right. Um, but um, um, so that process is extensive. If you get the nod and Peter, yes, you're hired. Um, you then go to the main police academy, the criminal justice academy. That's an 18 week school. Okay. And you attend that as a game warden with newly hired state troopers, deputy sheriffs, municipal officers, county sheriffs, those types of positions. And you all go together. There's about right. 60 per class. So you, you all get trained to the same level here in Maine. So all full-time officers go to the same academy. So that in the real world, you basically know what each other does and what your training levels are. And you build relationships and rapport with officers around the state, which is really good. That wasn't the case when I got hired. We had different schools for different agencies, um, but um, it's, I think, better now. Um, right. Then when game wardens graduate from that police academy, if they do, most do, uh, we generally do quite well at that academy. Those game wardens go to about another 12 to 14 week school. And that's also held at the academy, but it's much more game warden oriented. It's how to sure. conduct, you know, search and rescue, how to do um, tracking, um, you know, all the paperwork, you know, accident reconstruction for ATVs, hunting incidents, you know, where someone gets injured or killed. Uh, we have game wardens trained to a level of really homicide detectives. Wow. Um, because we have to eliminate the fact that someone didn't get murdered um, right. in a hunting incident. You know, I mean, that we certainly want to eliminate the fact that this is a cover up. And um, so we're those are one of our most critical incidents that we we investigate as wardens. So wow. There's, wow. there's a lot of training there. So we oh, talked. Sure. About, yeah, there's a there's that six month hiring, the 18 week um, academy, which is what, four and a half months. Right. And then the Warden Academy, which is, let's just call it another three months, three and a half months. Wow. So that's, you're at, you're at over a year. So if, if you and I applied today mm -hmm. and we were successful and we were all trained and ready to go, you and I wouldn't be entering the field likely until the beginning of probably next spring. Wow. Um, so yeah. you're investing a lot of time and effort uh, with a prospective warden before they even, you know, uh, respond to anything. That's, that's pretty, I mean, yeah. that's, uh, so, so the hiring process, I can see why it needs to be extensive and, you know, why you have to, you know, pretty much know you've got the right person, uh, before you even start down the path, because you're going to invest a lot of time and money in, in getting them through and, and hopefully loading them up in that shiny new rig. Yeah. Yeah, we do the best we can. There's no magic eight ball. So the we just have to do our, our one of our most important jobs really is in the warden services, hiring and finding good people. And um, the only way really to predict the future is to look at someone's past and see what their patterns of behavior are. I'm actually doing a background on someone right now that wants to be a game warden. It's and, not um, me, by the way. It's not me. It's no, not me. no. <laughs> No. So we wouldn't get very uh, far. <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. Um, you know, the, and it's it's important to note too that no one's an angel. I certainly sure. wasn't. And 
to be quite honest, angels don't always make very good law enforcement officers. If if you've got someone so straight laced, it, it could be difficult for them being a police officer or a game warden because they may not have a real good depth of perception on what it takes to actually make mistakes. You know, right. there's certainly a difference between hiring a candidate that may have one or two glaring you know, issues in their background. And obviously there's some things they can't do, but you know, if it really becomes a matter of incidents versus patterns. And if uh, I, I've, I've talked about recruitment for years, and if you look at someone's background and it looks like someone's EKG of criminal patterns, you know, blips and blips and blips over the years, that's probably not good. You know, we hope to see, and we almost always see that blip in criminal activity between the ages of 17 and 21. Wow. And okay. it's very, very normal. You'll see that it'll be like this through their teens and then bloop, it'll go up and then it'll level off in their 20s. And that's very, very normal. Interesting. And if someone that has the blip every three, two or three years of criminal activity, that's really a concern for us. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it's, it's sort of uh, anomalies versus patterns is what yep. you're... You're looking yep. for, hey, that's the same way I fish, right? Like, uh, you know, if I catch one fish, it's an anomaly. If I catch a bunch, it's a pattern, and maybe I've got them figured out. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, okay, so so you've gone through. You're now you're now a warden. What? When did it? You know, can you can you tell us a, a like maybe the first incident when you're like, wow, I'm in it. Like this is real. When you're a young warden and and something happens that's either either strange or maybe dangerous, but is, was there a time when you were like, boy, okay, things just got real? Yeah, I was, uh, the most memorable one for me, I, I spent my first two or three years uh, in Northern York County, Maine, which is the Southern part of Maine, but it's, uh, it's a wooded area. It's kind of mountainous and, and remote, and it was a beautiful place to be a game warden. And, um, I probably could come up with some others, but this one stands out. You know, I was working, it was spring. I got to kind of recollect exactly how this all happened, but uh, I was out just patrolling and and uh, as any game warden would do, you know, I was looking for people fishing. The worm dunkers, you know, or whatever that looking, you know, they park next to a culvert and they try to get a brook trout. Brook trout are very popular uh, for people to go after in that in that region. And so I saw a truck and I stopped and hid my truck and did what brand new game wardens do. I hid in the bushes and waited for this person to come out. So with no clear indication if someone goes upstream or downstream, typically you just look at wait on their truck. So in the off chance you go downstream and they went upstream, you might miss them and they might leave. So there's a trick for someone right there. Right. But, uh, <laughs> so, so, uh, and you don't want to slam your door when you park your truck and go hiding because they'll hear it for a mile away. Right. And um, so anyway, I'm hiding in the bushes and these two gentlemen, just put it nicely, um, came, out of, came out of the woods carrying buckets and um, no fishing poles. But it was pretty quick to sum up that they were planting their marijuana. And uh, keep in mind, you know, this was 22, 21 or 22 years ago. Okay. And, right. and growing marijuana back then was a big no, no. Okay. Yeah. Federal offense. This things is have changed. Things, yeah. things have changed. I, we probably wouldn't even skip a beat now. 
things have changed. But uh, I start talking to these guys, and it was became clear quickly. It became very, very clear very quickly that um, this was a father and son, and they were very, very nervous. The dad, in particular, he was probably fifty years old or so, maybe forties, late for early, you know, mid to late forties, and the son was probably, I don't know, eighteen. You know, great thing to do with your, you know, father and right, son. Right, right. The old father and son experience. Let's, yeah. hey, son, let's, uh, let's, let's go plant our crop for the year. We're yeah. going to show you dad's business. Yeah. So, you know, this doesn't sound all that spectacular until I, maybe I tell you a little bit more. But um, this was before cell phones and whatnot. So I was pretty much stuck. I couldn't call anybody other than on a radio to say, hey, this is what I got. But then I really didn't have much. I had these guys with buckets with growing material, which was consistent with growing marijuana. That's all I had. So I got their basic information. I, I essentially had to cut them loose because I wasn't going to go track and look for their stuff while they were there, and it just didn't make sense. So so I cut them loose, and I go find my payphone, which was uh, ah. what you did back then. And, and Right, it, right. And it was few and far between, so I drove and found myself my, my uh, payphone. And I called Maine Drug Enforcement Agency, and I'd become friendly with one of their investigators and told them what I had. And he's like, okay, yeah. And I, this was probably the, the 12th case I'd got for them like that. So we developed some oh, wow. and Gotcha. And because uh, I used to find it all the time. And right. So I told them who this was, and they were like, whoa, um, you don't know who you've got here, but that's a bad guy. He just got out of prison. Oh, wow. And um, he is the prime suspect in a murder that uh, we have yet to be able to prove. And with the state police, we believe, uh, you know, he's, you know, there were some details there that uh, they couldn't quite prove it, but they were quite confident that he'd uh, killed the person or wow. at least dumped the body. Right. And he was part of a, you know, motorcycle gang affiliation. And, and basically it was now me standing between him and him going back to prison. And, right. Um, I didn't know this when I was dealing with him. So long story, still kind of long, I guess. Uh, uh, <laughs> we convicted him in Superior Court and he went back to prison in New Hampshire because I think that's where he had been because he was on probation when I got him, but I didn't know that. So right. um, at least I didn't for you know an hour or so. Uh, right. But, so anyway, that was pretty hairy. Yeah, I think had his son not been there to maybe temper his temper, right? Things could have gone bad very quickly for me as a new game warden, and not really expecting. You know, you can get trained to whatever level you need, but uh, until that happens to you, if he'd become very aggressive, that that would have been could have been a fight for my life. But who knows? Right, right, and I and you know, and you're. I mean, I think that's one of the things that people don't sort of realizes you don't know who you're going to be running into out, right. out in the woods. And um, even though you are armed, you're also most of the time coming up, you know, especially when you're talking about hunters, like you're confronting people with weapons, a right. lot of your, you know, a, a, yeah. on a lot of your calls, um, yeah. you know, and that's, that's, I think I read a statistic that being a game warden is, uh, you know, uh, one of the most dangerous occupations in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people don't, don't realize that. Um, so there is some risk involved, but yeah. you know, you also get to 
to do some some really fun things as well. I mean, you, you know, um, like, can you think of some times where, or a time when you, you know, had a run in more with an animal, um, you know, that, that was kind of interesting or, uh, you know, you, you just sort of got to have that sort of, um, close contact that most people don't, you know, ever have the chance in their life. Yeah, yeah. We actually just this past fall um, had a moose in downtown Portland, Maine. Wow. Which really isn't all that uncommon. It, it seems to happen about every year in the fall. Once there's, you know, a handful of incidents where that happens. So, you know, there's always this some level of tolerance that you have to apply to it that, okay, we're in Maine, there's a moose. Right. You know, you have to factor in what level of public, you know, safety's involved you know is it near a you know a busy highway where the moose could step out into the highway in this particular instance there really wasn't but it just it wasn't leaving right. so we uh, we gave it a day and hoping that it would you know get out its gps and get itself out of there but it never did so uh collectively we have but you know there's biologists wildlife biologists within our sure. department and um some of them are trained with tranquilizers and and whatnot and and somewhat used to these types of situations you know sometimes it's deer sometimes it's these moose so you know being um this past fall when we had covid you know going on right this was a you know a neighborhood you know Pretty exciting. It was an exciting thing for everyone in the neighborhood. So everyone was coming out to check this out. Of course. And because it had been on the news and there was not maybe a lot going on. So they, they've been getting film of this moose wandering the streets. So everybody. Is, was, is this a bull or a cow? Uh, it was a small bull. It was a small, was bull, a small right? bull. Yeah. Probably a uh, year and a half old. I'm gotcha. guessing. And of course, you know, uh, uh, people may not know, but but moose are extremely dangerous, and uh, uh, <coughs> they're they're more dangerous than than bears in many respects. Yeah. Um, well, they, big, they can be, uh, but can, all, it's usually at the when they're provoked by humans, and of course. the you know if you leave them alone, that they're typically absolutely fine. But what we always have to manage as part of getting this moose out of this area, which we ended up doing, is managing the public's interest in it, you know, and saying, okay, listen, give this thing a wide berth. And, you know, if it looks like it's trying to navigate out of this wood line, then please allow it to do so, rather than having the paparazzi surrounding the woods with their cameras, you know, and just irritating, agitating the animal. Um, right. Almost forcing it to stay there. So, there's always the public education that you're trying to do. Meanwhile, you're trying to find the best solution to get this thing out. Sure. So anyway, it all worked out really, really well. I even got it on video on my phone, but uh, mm -hmm. the biologists were uh, ace shots and they got their, they got their dark placement and the moose went down in a matter of minutes and we moved it as far away as we possibly could uh, from Portland. Right. And, uh, Hopefully it's uh, still up and going. So it, it's doing all right. I'll tell you, I mean, this is kind of, uh, I had a similar experience. Uh, I used to live in Livingston, Montana, which is just, you know, a little north of uh, uh, Yellowstone National Park. 
and yep. uh, right on the Yellowstone. And uh, we had moose that would come in and, uh, uh, you know, they would they would actually hang around the park, Sacagawea Park, around the soccer fields. And uh, I, at the time, I was a guide, but I was also uh, a writer for the newspaper. And mm -hmm. so we had heard that the moose had moved in and uh, we actually were were contacted by the uh, the local fish, wildlife, and parks, and they said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna dart this thing. It's up in in a neighborhood. Well, it's actually a neighborhood. It was my neighborhood, so we went down there and uh, and you know, same thing. It was eating apples out of an apple tree in someone's front yard. Uh, everyone was around, and uh, you know, uh, uh, both law enforcement and the warden service had backed everyone up, and uh, you know, they let me into." to uh, do some photography and whatnot, but they, they darted this moose and they had a horse trailer. They were loading it in, uh, but they, they darted it and the moose, it was really funny. Uh, there was the warden's vehicle. And when they darted it, the moose kind of got a little bit, you know, it was starting to get wobbly and you could just see it. It was wobble, wobble, wobble. And it started falling to its right. And wouldn't you know it, there's cars up and down the street. What car did it bang into? The warden's car. Giant, you know, giant uh, yeah. dent in there. But one of the things that I, I went out on the release as well, but one of the things that was really interesting was that they cut the antlers off of it and uh, with a hacksaw. And I was like, oh, why are you doing that? I said, well, you know, we don't know how long that meat might be tainted and, uh, it could be that someone, you know, we're, we're releasing it where someone could have a bull moose tag and they could yeah. shoot it and eat the meat. So I just sure. thought that was a really interesting, you know, I mean, just having to think that far ahead is right. something that the normal person probably wouldn't have, have thought of, but it made perfect sense mm -hmm. uh, once they explained it. So no, that's a, that's a good point. We have to do the same thing here. And typically when we're having our moose problems is during the moose hunt. Because that's sure. when they're rutting and they're doing their, uh, you know, their usual behavior. But it's what's getting them in conflict with humans typically is in that hunting season time. So we do the same, although we have cow and moose permits here. So right. cutting the antlers off doesn't solve the problem for us here, unfortunately. So we tag them and um, ah. with a visible tag with a reference number and say, if you find this moose, you know, do not eat it, call this number and report it. And right. uh, you know, there's a, there's a lifespan of that drug in the meat that if someone were to eat it, it could affect them as well. So that's right. That's um, right. It's important. Well, so, um, you know, so, so these are just a couple of stories. I know that you have, you know, uh, probably hundreds and hundreds of stories. So I, I kind of want to transition into, you know, we've all learned a lot more about what it's really like to be a warden by, by watching Northwood's law. And you were, um, you were kind of the, the, in charge of that project from the warden's perspective. Um, yeah, it's a long, I don't know how many seasons, uh, it's, it's run on animal planet, but I know it's in syndication. You can still see it. And it really, the show really depicts what it's like to be a warden and the different cases that, that they have to deal with. Uh, how did that, how did that, you know, come to pass. And, you know, I was really surprised that the warden service would say yes to something like this, right? Mm -hmm. Because who knows what can happen? Um, you know, I guess we are used to the, the law enforcement shows like cops or whatnot, but, um, you know, uh, tell me a little bit about 
you know, who approached the, did this come from you or was this really someone from, from a, a TV station that had the idea and they, they kind of came to you all to see if you were interested? Well, it, it is a long story and I'll try to make it both concise and interesting, but um, they came to us initially and it was not initially Animal Planet, it was National Geographic that came to us. And okay. um, this was late 2009, maybe 2010. Um, okay. And we were going through an administration change back then. And, you know, a letter coming in the mail back then saying, hey, do you want to be part of a reality TV show? Just didn't rise to the level of let's get on this quickly. So sure. it was about that time that I got promoted to this position, in, which dealt uh, at the time, at least, with outreach and education and recruitment efforts and, and those types of things. So it kind of landed nicely into my lap uh, at about early 2000, probably late 2009, early 2010. And um, so I contacted the, the person in this letter, excuse me, and um, we had not reacted quickly enough. So they had already chose California. And if anyone okay. remembers the show California Game Wars, um, that was basically California Game Wardens, and they chose them um, because we hadn't reacted. And uh, so, you know, too bad for us. So we uh, we we didn't cry in our Cheerios too long, but uh, we it was nice. Uh, the person that I did contact said, you know, we have an employee that just left here, and um, they went to New York. Try her, and she works for a new production company, and maybe they'd like to create something. So did all that. And she was very responsive, got right back to me. And she says, yeah, what this California game wars is taken right off. We need some uh, competition. <laughs> so, you know, there was a series of, you know, a lot of them coming to Maine, doing pitch tapes, you know, trying to, you know, capture different game warden personalities to see who was most colorful and, and, right. and, and that took, a couple of years, really, just to establish itself as, okay, is this really something we want to do, first of all? Sure. Which many of us didn't. I was in favor of it. And uh, the colonel of the main warden service, most importantly, was in favor of it. Right. Or it and, never would have happened. Or it never would have happened. But right. he wasn't surrounded by a lot of people with, you know, go, go, go. It was, you're going to oh, give yeah. away all our secrets. And we're going right. to be crucified for, you know, whatever, make it up. And right. uh, we just didn't know. It was something that we were not aware of. But anyway, he had the courage to say, yeah, take this, John, see what you can do with it. And really gave me the ability to run with it, to, you know, gather the pitch tapes and, and uh, get that work done, the important work, you know, understanding the production company, what they're Sure. What the core values were to make sure that they were in line with ours. You know, we were adamant that we're not going to do this reality TV show and make things up. Um, right. We right. this is going to be real stuff here. So know that going forward that we're not going to create anything that's artificial. So right. even in the reality TV world, that's not all that common. You know, they have to reenact things that may have happened. So right. You know, we're trying to capture things that are on that are real and ongoing on 
live happening live right i mean in a lot of ways i mean you're not you're not handing the uh the suspected perps a uh, script right Right. i mean you just have to you've got to work with the unfolds yeah i mean we there's some exception to that in that you know if you want to show a scene that's involving the dispatcher getting the call you know some of that stuff was reenacted where a dispatcher might receive a call and and sure kind of give you the the build up of what this case was but everything right. else was H- help support the help support the plot a little the bit yeah. yeah so um you know that was our primary goal was to make sure that this was done in a real way and that it was genuine and that game wardens who were going to be represented how we wanted them to be represented in their real job. You know, we weren't going to try to make something that we did once in a lifetime look like something we did every day. Right. And, um, you know, in, on the other hand, we also had to use a lot of care in how the, the suspects that we caught were portrayed. And sure. <clears throat> some people might hear this and think, Oh, yeah, I can't imagine you spent a lot of time there, but we actually did. And that was my job to make sure that, you know, people don't often do themselves a lot of favors in bad situations. But sure. it really was my job and the production company's job to make sure that it was tempered somewhat so that, you know, someone's, you know, identity and character on national TV wasn't absolutely ruined. Right. Uh, you know, 10 seconds of uh, or 10 minutes of, of poor decision making. So anyway, that was right. a big part of it. And that's a, a big part of what the success was. And we we had a uh, one of our top priorities, you know, when we were capturing and investigating fatalities that made it to Northwood's law was that we worked closely with the families and saying, listen, this we have this reality TV show. And at the time, most people knew it. It was very, very popular here. Right. But um, uh, it was popular. You know, it became popular nationwide. I yeah, mean, it was right. it. Uh, I don't know what the ratings ended up being, but I, it had to have been one of their top shows. Yeah. would be my yeah, guess. I was told it was, too. So, you know, we're certainly weren't going to capture fatality video right. footage and details of that. And without asking family members to, you know, we're going to put this on national TV now. Right on that platform. So we we did all the legwork. You know, a lot of that was my responsibility. Um, getting that story built through the production company, which was Engel Entertainment, right. <clears throat> out of New York, and we became very close friends, really, out of this, with a right. very good understanding of each other's points of view and perspective. And we would build up that story, and and uh, they would create it as it was going to be seen on national TV. And we would go visit the family and say, this is what it is. Is there anything about this that bothers you? Um, so that they basically gave it our blessing before it was on TV. And, and that, that proved to be very, very successful for us. And there were some families that didn't want it to happen and we, and we wouldn't do it. So. Right. Right. Uh, I, I could see that. I, w- I mean, I, that was going to be a question and that I wanted to ask is that, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of great stories that are on the cutting room floor because of any number of reasons, right? Like, like you were talking about that the folks involved, if it was a fatality, didn't didn't want that to to happen. Um, you know, uh, and then 
uh, with, you know, when you're sort of selecting this talent, both from the beginning, you know, the talent from meeting the officers that you were going to shadow, um, you know, certainly you're looking for folks that are of different levels of experience, right? Because you want to, you want to, yeah. you know, you want to show some rookie mistakes, but you oh, also, yeah. you know, you you also wanted to, to have people that, you know, we could identify with and we're kind of uh, putting your, your best foot forward. Did any of them, I mean, you know, you, you can be honest here. Did any of them turn into divas once they got on the air? I mean, I got to believe it, it could go to people's heads if they knew that millions of Americans were, were checking in on how they did their job. It could also be incredibly frightening. Well, the game wardens did a pretty good job keeping their egos in check because they were so highly scrutinized by their peers that they they had right. to they had to act within their parameters and um, or you know be within their parameters. Um, so I think overall they did really well. Um, did it go to some of them their heads? I don't know. I, I didn't see a lot of examples of that, but um, some some wardens became very very popular out of it, yeah. and you know they got Twitter accounts that sur surpass you know a, a lot of you know professional you know ball play. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And, and um, so you know that was a it was a good thing, um, but you always have to prepare yourself, you know, for that platform and that level of visibility. Um, there's always people that looking to take some pop shots at you. And that was also sure. my, my job just to manage some of that. And, and there were a few, there were a couple notable, you know, issues that came up that, you know, mostly because of our stature in the public, you know, there were some stories written about us that, you know, uh, kind of took advantage of that uh, sure. fame, so to speak, that was very disingenuous, even here locally. And right. um, it, it's it's kind of, it's it's too bad to see, but that's kind of the reality of things is that right. you know, sometimes right. it's, it's taken advantage of. And, uh, but we moved on, we got past those two, but overall 99% of it was a, a really good thing. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I think that that, that that sort of brings up, you know, sort of the perception of of game wardens, and um, you know, I think one, you know, uh, having been a guide for a couple of decades, you know, I always saw game wardens as kind of partners for for me, or, or, or you know, I I wanted game wardens out there patrolling, making sure people were following fishing game laws, were making sure people weren't, you know, uh, capturing and and uh and killing more than they should and i had a really good relationship with my game wardens uh, uh, you know here in montana uh, do you think that i mean was that was it different in maine did you was there an adversarial or did it really depend on the person um when you're talking about professionals who were either mm -hmm. hunting guides or fishing guides or lodge owners or whatnot yeah no we had a lot of support and we have a good partnership with people who enjoy the outdoors here um, we've done polls for, you know, a variety of reasons over the years and our public support level is as good as it's ever been probably. And, and among right. state, state agencies and state employees were, were fortunately regarded very, very high and, uh, you know, 80 to 90% public approval rating the last, uh, wow. that we're done. So, yeah. And, but we don't take that lightly. 
we have a good working relationship with the public and outdoors people, people who hunt, fish, recreate outdoors. And um, uh, we just try to do our job very professionally. And even those people, and you saw it on Northwoods Law, a lot of those people that we caught yeah. intentionally doing something wrong, not the ones that were unintentional and, and uh, um, uh, we had provided some education to, but the ones that woke up in the morning intending to go out and do something wrong fishing game wise even those people most of them shook the game warden's hand at the end of the of the scene and thanked them for being kind to them right uh, so that's something we 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 are proud of um can't right. do that with everybody because everybody reacts a little bit differently but by and large that's that's the um i think the public's perception of us here in maine do, do you think i mean do you think that the show boosted the, that public opinion for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would I think have thought the, so too. The job has always been somewhat. Uh, there's been a mystique behind it, and a little bit secretive, you know. Right. People think we parachute out of the sky and check them ice, you know, fishing and where'd you come from type of thing, and it kind of tore down some of those walls, which was good. You know, it was a little scary for us, but it ended up being a good thing, and our our public support really was through the roof and continues to be very, very strong. So um, breaking down some of that barrier ended up being a good thing. Well, I, you know, not, I, I don't want you to give away your secrets, but uh, you know, that sort of brings up, you, you know, part of your job is to be stealthy and, uh, and, and try to, you know, catch people in the act, which can be really, really difficult, you know, especially when you're talking about, you know, someone's hunting, they're in camouflage, right? Like to be a good hunter, you have to be good at concealment and stalking, and you have to also have a pretty good idea of what's around you. Um, so, I, I mean, are there techniques that 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 you use that that you're willing to share um, that are are some that that you know maybe are a little bit different or odd or a way that that maybe we haven't thought about you know what your job entails. Yeah, I mean, you, you when you're working with people that, I mean, there's a difference between going out on routine patrol and just checking people who are opportunists that may be just because an opportunity presents itself, they may choose to break the law because it was right. felt like the right thing to do at the time. Um, oh, or the bit the big buck jumps the fence, and the, the boy, they really just they yeah. just they just yeah. have buck fever, or boy, man, I could just I can get away with this. Yeah. Um, and then they don't. Yeah. But then we get the category, which is the muscle, much less frequent category of those intentional violators, which is a very small percentage of our public that goes out and intends to, you know, get away with something that they, they shouldn't. And those require a lot more care and a lot more thought, a lot right. more ingenuity, um, information. You know, we, we rely so much on public information uh, right. for us to catch those people, because to be quite honest, most of that activity is happening behind people's homes where, sure. they, where they do have a lot of, you know, anonymity and privacy, you know, game wardens can't be behind everyone's house. Right. Um, and we have a lot of opportunity that, uh, for that here in Maine. We're a very, very rural, very wooded state. So many times, unless a neighbor, an ex-husband, an ex-wife, an ex-girlfriend, uh, uh, you know, a, a 
a once friend says, hey, you, you might want to check into Billy. Uh, he's uh, he's doing right. this, this, that, or the other behind his house. And and uh, so that might initiate it for us. And yeah, you have to be much more thoughtful about how you approach those people. And And in our business, if you don't see it, it's hard to prove. So right. you got to lay your eyes on it. And, you know, you just can't suspect someone of it. You've got to have some darn good proof that someone did it rightfully so. So right. it, it takes some time. Do you, do you think that those people that are, you know, we'll just call them sort of serial poachers, um, you know, certainly some of them, I would imagine, are doing it for the money, um, what little they can get from a from a scholar amount or whatnot. But is there sort of this mindset where they like the idea of of you know playing cat and mouse, and even after you catch them and find them, they go right back to doing it just because there's something in them that that is really just just sort of is driven by that. Do you find that often? Yeah, it's a culture within a family sometimes, and uh, it's learned from the great grandfather to the grandfather, or the grandmother, whatever the situation is, and it's a cultural thing within the family. And yeah. you know, killing, you know, it's it's different here in Maine. Some states you can kill many, many deer every day, but right. uh, our deer herd here is very um, uh, sensitive, especially in northern Maine. So we take our deer violations very seriously, and. Um, yeah, some of those intentional violators um, have learned that behavior from their family. And uh, it's hard to infiltrate that and change that pattern of behavior. And um, sometimes it just it doesn't work. But, you know, a thousand dollar fine or spending time in jail. Right. Sometimes does. Uh, so uh, we, we can't relax that. But um, it's uh, it's something we see. It's not a. Uh, those those families are are not that's not the most common scenario that's for sure most people right. are doing it right so uh, we we tend to know what those families are and we try to you know even befriend them and say you know sometimes honey works a lot better so um, <laughs> in, some, right. in many instances it does in changing people's patterns of behavior and just continuing being that opposition to their culture that sometimes doesn't work. Sometimes infiltrating that family at a different level sometimes works too, but not all the time. Right, right, right. I mean, I can, I can see, I, I can see those issues, especially when you have a longstanding kind of family history. Yeah. You know, this is just, you know, this is just what you do here if you're in this yeah. family, yeah. but, uh, you know, yeah. being able to, to, to get through maybe to that younger generation. And I mean, look, some of the penalties are stiff, right? Mm -hmm. You could lose your license for life, which for some of us who are sportsmen like myself, like that would be crippling, right? Like I would, that would be a really, really upsetting thing to, to, you know, so just, you know, the fear of that, um, I think can keep a lot of people, but it's also, like you said, like big fines, there can be jail time, um, you know, it can really send you down a, a terrible path. So, yeah, um, yeah, it can put you in a, in a financial bind. And, um, <clears throat> you know, sometimes these families, you know, fish and wildlife violations are only a part of their resume. You know, they are oftentimes those families engaged in other criminal activity. So going to jail or going to court or paying fines, unfortunately, for some 
it's very few. It's almost a cost of doing business for them. But um, right. if they pay it at all, uh, pay those fines. But um, you know, fortunately, by and large, people aren't like that, and those aren't the the people we see the most often. But uh, when we do, we we give it special emphasis, and and uh, we're very very good at apprehending them and uh, kind of uh, making them them uh, uh, holding them accountable. Right. Have you have you had any run-ins? You know, uh, you talked a little bit about your run-ins with uh, some folks uh, in the illegal drug trade. Um, you know, have you had any other kind of run-ins with with felons? Uh, I think I remember you telling us a little story um, because a lot of times people who are trying to avoid law enforcement hide out in the woods. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's where their safety zone is. Is out in the woods and, you know, doing things that they feel they may not be detected doing. So, yeah, we, the game wardens are often, you know, um, encountering people doing just that in the woods. And just recently we had a game warden that was on his day off and uh, was up near the Canadian border and found a fugitive from Virginia with a, uh, basically someone he'd kidnapped that, uh, a younger female that, he had kidnapped and they were trying to get, you know, across the border and he had instructed her not to speak, you know. Um, so when the game warden confronted him, she wouldn't say anything, pretended she was mute. Uh, mute, mute. And um, um, it, it was very, very strange, but, you know, that all, you know, shook down and they were, they were captured and she was basically probably saved her life. Absolutely. Uh, the woman. So it's just uh, we do encounter things like that, that um, really bring it back to a sense of reality that, geez, I, I can encounter some weird things sometimes. And uh, fortunately, mostly it's the good people that we see out in the woods. But uh, you always got to be prepared for those, uh, you know, infrequent, you know, opportunities where you really got to be on point. Right, right. Well, John, you were telling me that, um, you know, that that there's kind of some open spots um, right now for for wardens that uh, you're kind of seeing a, a rash of retirements and uh, trying to get more people, uh, you know, uh, to apply or to 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 go through what you've already laid out as a very extensive um, program. Um, do people need to be, you know, uh, hunters and fishermen to 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 be in the job or is that not really matter? No, it's very important to us still. And, you know, as society has kind of evolved, at least in general, people have been navigating away of some from some of those more traditional outdoor sports, hunting and trapping and, and whatnot. Uh, in Maine, we're bucking that system a little bit. Our hunting license, fishing license sales are actually very, very strong and, and ticking up in some categories. But so getting back to recruitment and hiring people, you know, as a game warden, it's very important for people to have that hands-on life experience with hunting and fishing so that they have that arsenal and that that toolbox that allows them to understand the culture and the people that are passionate about it too. So you can just, you can imagine a game warden if there were to be a scenario that had no hunting and fishing experience and you suddenly cast them out into the field to go work deer hunters. And, you know, it, it's very, it, it'd be very difficult 
to understand the vocabulary of hunters and what their right. steps are and what they do to actually hunt and harvest and the patients involved and the steps involved with the registering and tagging deer and field dressing a deer and killing one for the first time and being excited about it for them. And so um, you got that to contend with. And then you got the part where, you know, if, if you are passionate about the outdoors, it's important for a game warden to have that passion too, to really work the resources when they need to be worked. For instance, if you've got night hunting complaints for deer, or, you know, people are illegally smelting, you know, in closed brooks, you know, at two in the morning, it would be more difficult to pull someone who has no experience and no passion for that stuff to gear them up and get them excited to go, you know, work at two in the morning and freeze to death, trying to get someone, right. you know, a couple quarts of smelts in a closed brook or catching someone who's night hunting a deer, you know, uh, it, it's just really important for us to identify who those people are in our hiring process. So we have established a really good process that, <clears throat> and we kind of alluded to it at the beginning, we, we kind of hire people in the reverse of what most companies hire people. You know, we, we almost, our, our process is designed to identify the, the right person for our job, or at least, you know, it, it's pretty successful in that. Mm -hmm. Rather than, you know, receiving all the resumes and putting piles together of, okay, this looks like a good person, this person doesn't, this person maybe, you know, the process identifies the good person for us. You know, we don't look at resumes up front, you know, we just have people navigate the hiring process. And if they do well in the first two or three phases, then then they've made it pretty clear to us that they're at least, you know, ready to move on to the next steps. Right, and right, then, right. And then, and then we train them after the fact. You know, most jobs, you're looking for a particular degree when they go to work for Microsoft or right, you know, teaching right. or wherever, you're, wherever it is, you know, they, they got to have those checkoff boxes. But, uh, you know, Someone might test very, very well for us that has no college degree, and someone might might test really, really well for us that has a master's degree in conservation law enforcement. Right. But, um, um, there's no requirement to have a degree here for us, but uh, we know that it's not essential because we've seen in the past that some of our very best game wardens haven't had a college degree, but they've got as good or better life experience that makes up for it. So Sure, right. Um, it's uh, it's a neat, uh, it's a cool dynamic process to watch. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, you know, and it makes perfect sense. You know, if you're uh, an avid hunter and fisherman and outdoorsman, you know, not only are you going to be excited about protecting that resource, but you're also going to you're going to understand either the mistakes that people will make or the the boundaries that they're going to push, and then yeah. how to approach them to to you know catch them in the act, uh, yeah. and hopefully educate them. Right. Like I, I know that you guys do a lot of that of, you know, it's not always like, gotcha, you know, here's a ticket. Um, it's, it's, it's like, I kind of feel like you didn't mean to do this and here's how you can avoid this next time. Or, mm -hmm. you know, here's here, you know, but there's also, I'm sure you run into people playing dumb a lot. I didn't know that this was closed and I didn't know this. And Oh yeah. Yet, we, we've heard every excuse in the book and every lie and, and um, 
And unfortunately, it, it makes you question what anyone says to you until you can right. really get a good feel for, okay, what is this situation? What is this person's past like? How long have they been hunting? How long have they been fishing? You know, and it, it's part of our job to identify and, and determine who is that intentional person and who is the opportunist. And yeah. Sometimes it's tough. Yeah. I, I bet you get really good at it. I mean, it's, it's very similar to a guide. I have to analyze, you know, right away. How good really is this fisherman? And what really do they, you know, because everyone, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fly fisherman. I'm really good at this. But, you know, you yeah. could tell in a few minutes that they're even by how they show up, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, wh whether they're legit or not. So I bet you guys have some of those tricks, too, where you can immediately just how they dress their equipment, how they talk, whether they're kind of on the upper end of that hunting or fishing or trapping or outdoor mm -hmm. segment, or if they're, they're really yeah. uh, uh, novices. Yeah. And our hiring process is really interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's somewhat like walking into a, a hunting fishing lodge and you got five or six game wardens in a panel and you got furs, you got, you know, right. fishing equipment, traps, you know, all kinds of things. And we end up asking people, you know, what is this commonly referred to as, yeah. What is it used for? And show us how to use it. And right. that really is where the rubber meets the road. So someone can tell me in a recruitment interview, you know, how great they are. Right. And um, oversell themselves. And when they get to that point in the interview, they're like, they either shine or they may fall very short. Right. But right. Um, it's always interesting to see. Absolutely. Well, let, let's talk about a, a couple different things. And then, you know, we've been going for a while now, which is great. And uh, we could we could go for hours more. Um, I, I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of the search and rescue part of this. And and I think also because this can give uh, folks that are, are listening who recreate in the outdoors, maybe a little bit of uh, maybe things that they didn't think about. Um, you know, one thing I know that, that we all carry these things with us and we think this is how I'm always going to be able to navigate my way into my favorite fishing spot or, you know, um, hunt a ridge maybe I've never been on before, but these, these aren't always reliable. They can, you mm -hmm. can drop them, battery dies. Um, so I'm sure that you found many, many people wandering around at lost in the woods. Um, you know, I guess my, my first question would be, you know, what what do you suggest for uh, folks that are, are are out there that are are going to be at risk of exposure if they get lost? Yeah. Well, there's there's just that. What you want to get in people's heads is that they need to be prepared, I guess. And, you know, in, in Maine and which is the case with many states across the country and you know, with our varying weather. Um, you know, someone could go on a hike today here in Maine and be relatively comfortable with what they're wearing, but if they're not properly prepared and spend an unexpected night in the woods, they're not going to be dressed warmly enough. So, you know, it's just always kind of thinking two or three steps ahead and being prepared. You know, if you're going to go for a walk out behind your house, that's probably not rising to the level of, you know, telling everyone in the neighborhood that where you're going and what time you expect them to be back. But, uh, you know, certainly going out on trips, snowmobiling, you know, even going remote fishing or anywhere in particular, it's always good and it's easier now than ever it's ever been. Is just send, shoot someone a text or a friend or two or a family member. 
hey, I'm going fishing on such and such a place. I expect to be home for dinner. I love you. Bye. Mm -hmm. That's all we need to know. And more often than not, the person, the family member is going to, you know, when eight o'clock rolls around and and uh, Billy Jean's not home yet, they get concerned and they may themselves drive to their popular spots and try to find their car. But sometimes they call us and say, hey, uh, they were supposed to be home for dinner and, and they're not. Right. So I guess what that boils down to is just a, a level of preparedness, you know, and making sure people assess the level of risk involved in some things. Um, you know, just going out on a, uh, a snowmobiling trip in Maine or anywhere for that matter. You know, it, if you're going by yourself, there's, there's a whole lot of things um, that could go wrong. And just having some sense of what that could be to kind of get yourself, keep yourself out of trouble, you know, bringing spare belts or whatever for your snowmobile or spare park, spark plugs, a little extra gas, maybe a snack, um, extra socks. Maybe you get your snowmobile stuck and your boots get in the water. Uh, right. Just very, very simple things. And you held up your cell phone and and those have made our search and rescues in many instances a lot easier. The, you know, right. People will call us and say, I am lost and I don't know how to get out of here. Right. And, you know, maybe they don't have a good understanding of their, um, you know, their mapping systems or whatever. But um, on the flip side of that, you know, People count on this way too much. Right, right. And, uh, it just, it's funny, my wife and I just swapped over cell phone carriers, and, and so we've been paying attention to some more of the ads. But if you look, especially in Maine, you know, they'll mm -hmm. always throw up their great coverage maps. Right. But you look in Maine and probably Montana. Yeah. <laughs> Two-thirds of the state, or at least a third of the state is red. There's no coverage. Right. And um, there's no cell phone towers. There's, there's nothing. So... And those are typically the places you want to be as a hunter and fisherman, right? So yeah. if you're a diehard, yeah, you want to go to the red spots. That's right. So, you know, it, I think it's just making sure people properly assess the risks associated with whatever the, you know, their activity is that they choose to do outdoors and right. being prepared and telling people your plan. And um, right. the worst scenario for us is that we get a call from a spouse that says, Joey was supposed to be home at dinner and he wasn't. And they have no idea where they went and, right. you know, no idea what they were wearing or they just didn't hear any of their plan whatsoever, which is, which is common. And it gives us no place to start. Um, so it's, uh, you know, we always encourage people just to communicate with your family and tell them what you're up to. Right. It how how long is uh, have you found someone who's been wandering around the wood? Like what what's a you know uh, has anyone lasted weeks or is it mostly you know a few days and and boy when do you have to be in that uncomfortable situation where you you got to call it and you say you know there's just no way someone could have survived yeah. through this. Yeah. yeah, no, we've been in every one of those scenarios. We have about four hundred search and rescue rescue calls a year here. And wow. some of them last only just a few minutes, but some of them are days. And th there's an example of every possibility, honestly. Sure. Um, you know, the ones that go two or three days, that's when you typically either find them or the search kind of turns into a, a recovery mission. You know, the likelihood okay. of someone surviving, you know, especially in the winter here, more yeah. than three days 
depending on what the weather conditions have been, you know, we'll often begin to have to think about those uncomfortable conversations with the family that, okay, it's been a few days now. Um, you know, it, it, a lot depends on who is missing, you know, if they're 85 right. Alzheimer's or if they're, you know, 24 and they're fit. Um, but, uh, you know, you've, you have to always run parallel investigations too. You know, if someone is missing, you know, what, what are the chances that this is a little bit of foul play here or, you know, what, maybe they took off and didn't want anyone to know. Right. Or is this truly a lost person or, you know, what are the situations here? But I honestly, we have every example of that every year. Um, Right. But uh, yeah, we've had people go for days and days and, you know, we've gotten to the point where we thought it was a recovery, but the person mm-hmm. popped out. And right. uh, and then sometimes we we go in in just a few hours hoping to find the person. And, and sometimes we find them dead from, you know, health reasons. So, right. um, you know, it's this. And then you have the body recoveries in lakes and things, which are usually kind of a no-brainer right out of the gate. You know, right. you, you know it's a recovery, but, you know. Oftentimes the family's holding out some hope that the person sure. floated to some remote shoreline and they're in the woods, you know, surviving. But uh, right. so honestly, every scenario is just uh, yeah. at us. Yeah. Can you think of a time when somebody popped out where you had you were convinced that it was a recovery and they they you know and they had like a a, a harrowing story of survival that uh, you know that 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 you'd see on a You'd see on another, <laughs> yeah, another maybe a survivor uh, alone or something. There probably is an example of that I can't think of one right at the mm-hmm. moment. I mean, we we get a fair amount of people that are quite crafty in the woods, hunters especially that that do bring fires and they do bring extra mm-hmm. food. And you know, it's been a few days, especially in the North Woods, uh, where right. they. I can't think of a particular one, but I know what's happened. But. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was, you know, managing a search this past fall for a woman who was missing from a family. And every indication to me is that she was somewhere very, relatively close to the house. Mm-hmm. And it was a family that it was it was a tough family dynamic. I'll, I'll say that. OK. And, you know, a fair amount of alcoholism and different things and um, some, uh, you know, some abuse and, you know, uh, abuse of about every category you can kind of think of. So we're thinking, you know, probably somewhere relatively close to the house. And, you know, the longer this went on, you think, Jesus, this is probably not going to end well. So you're starting right. to have conversations that, you know, going into the next phase of your search. Right. And then lo and behold, you know, um, we find her, middle-aged woman, at an apartment, you know, in a nearby city with a friend that she had called on the landline and said, come get me. I'm sick of living here. And, um, gotcha. you know, so we, we concentrate efforts for a day in a particular area thinking she's in the woods. Right. Maybe dead. And, um, she just right. ran away from her family as an adult, made the conscious decision that I don't want to be involved in this family anymore and didn't tell anybody. Right. And, uh, so we, you know, we run all those channels out too. And, you know, fortunately found her, at a friend's house right. in an apartment in the city, and she was pregnant. Right. So, um, it's uh, you, you never can be sure going into a search where someone is, and uh, you got all these voices in your head telling you that this is probably what happened. But it seems like right. always it's not the way you think it is. 
Right, right, right. What's the, what's the uh, you know, kind of shifting gears here, what's the biggest rack or the strangest rack that you you found or confiscated, either found dead or had to confiscate from a, a hunter of, uh, you know, because I can remember one time I was with another guide buddy and we floated down uh, a little side channel and there were two bucks who had who were dead at the bottom of the of the river with their antlers intertwined and, and barbed wire wrapped around them. So they had been fighting, fought into a barbed yeah. wire fence, rolled down and rolled into the river and ended up drowning together. Um, and, uh, you know, have you, have you ever found anything like what's, what's something like that, that that's popped up? I know you found them cause I found a few oh, and yeah. I'm not out there as much as you. I just looked at it on my phone yesterday and it was two falls ago. So it was probably 2019. Mm-hmm. A, it was actually a friend of mine's neighbor called him and said, I found something really strange. And um, they walked out behind this guy's house and he had a well, a dug well, you know, with probably four foot tiles, maybe five foot tiles. It was, I don't don't know, it was a well that they were using. That's how they figured it out. And their their water got pretty nasty. And um, they had had it covered with some, a wood platform. Sure. um, For safety and whatnot. And um, so my buddy went out behind the house with him and uh they discovered that there was a deer a dead deer in the well (laughs) and uh of course it had got the water water a little stinky and (laughs) and um so they they start getting the deer and they're hefting on it and they pull it out and it is this massive massive buck like as big as they get around here and um, so they pull it out and they're like, you know, enthralled with this whole situation. And they look back in the well, and there's another foot kind of bobbing up and down. Deer foot. Huh. Hoof. So they grab on that, and they pull it out, and it's an even bigger buck. No way. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. And um, they get them out on the ground, and they discovered that, we discovered that these deer had been fighting. Mm-hmm. And... They had got somewhat interlocked, and one deer evidently had backed up onto this platform and broke through. And because of the momentum of those two fighting, they both went right in, one on top of another, and and drowned in this person's well. Oh, my gosh. And uh, these deer are huge. (laughs) And um, I just looked at the pictures yesterday on my phone, and um, just bizarre. I've never seen anything like that. That is... (laughs) <laughs> that is bizarre. And oh, how would you like to be that homeowner? Those deer had been there for who knows how long, maybe a week. Oh, and, um, man. Oh. And, uh, they were in pretty good shape, but they'd been somewhat preserved by the cold water, you know. Right, right. Um, the animals certainly hadn't got at them, but uh, ugh. What do you do? Yeah. What, what do you guys do with when you confiscate a. Uh, you know, uh, both with the meat and with the antlers, right? Do you just have a shed that's just piled full of, of deer skulls or do you try to figure out something to do with them? And then the meat, is it is there a threshold of when the meat's still usable or how do you kind of deal with that? Yeah, if we can determine meat is good yeah. and there's no reason for us to believe the dead deer is connected with any particular crime, 
that we need right. to be concerned with. We often just give it to hunters in Maine. It's called Hunters for the Hungry. Oh, okay. Um, and we have uh, relationships with some local, you know, deer cutters, butchers, and yeah. they work with this basically a independent business that supplies meat to soup kitchens and other places for people that need the food. So I would say the majority, vast majority of those deer go, go there. That's um, great. And in some instances, you know, you'll have, um, you might seize a big deer that was night hunted. And because you got to hang on to that until the case is adjudicated, goes to the courts and the person's found guilty or whatever. Right. And in those situations, we almost always use those antlers and deer heads for, we have these mobile units called the wall of shame. And they're <laughs> great, great. Uh, it through, uh, it's a partnership we have with Maine Operation Game Thief. And um, we oftentimes use those antlers as an example of what not to do. And, um, you know, we'll have a little tidbit story about how this animal is illegally taken. And, and we bring this trailer full of this beautiful stuff to public events. And it just kind of creates a, an education for people that this is what people are stealing from the, from the state and really every state. And right. uh, so they're used in that capacity sometimes. And that's really it. I mean, you, you either get the, the meat that's no good and that just gets, you know, um, well, in, in this region, we have the main wildlife park and a lot of those deer, if it's mm -hmm. deer that are even questionable and we're not going to eat, we bring them to the wildlife park and they cut them up and they uh -huh. give them to mountain lions and, you know, bobcats and whatever other animals at the park would like to eat that stuff. So, um, Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, this is a uh, usually a an avenue for about any example. Sure. So silver lining. Yeah. Um, well, well, John, it, it's been fascinating. We could we could talk for hours, and and maybe we will. Maybe we'll uh, we'll have to just do this again and uh, get no, some more great stories out of you. But um, mm -hmm. you know, is there, is there anything else that you can think of a story you might want to share or? Uh, uh, you know, or even how people who might be interested in becoming a warden in Maine uh, would apply. Yeah, I think the hot topic right now is getting good candidates to apply to us. So if anyone's interested in listening, um, the best way to find out information is to go to mefishwildlife.com. It's uh, Maine's abbreviation, M-E, okay. fish wildlife, no periods, mefishwildlife.com. If you okay. forget that, just type in mainegamewarden.com. We own that domain too, and it'll land you on that page. Awesome. And it'll tell you about these specialty teams and you know all the uh, um, you know requirements and different things that need to be uh, <clears throat> met in order to apply and navigate that that whole system. Um, we're hiring right now. We kind of have an open enrollment period. We're trying to just capture as many people as we can and get them to a point where we can hopefully offer them a job. Um, where there's some challenges right now with the police academy being closed due to COVID and those types of things, but we're still trying to build that pool of candidates. So if anyone has that you know, outdoor experience, um, thinks that law enforcement is something they like to do, or maybe they're already doing it and they want a new path, um, you can go to that website, maingamewarden.com. A recruiter link you can click on it goes right to my email great and, um we can uh talk you through that process that sounds great we'll share those links as well um, okay 
Well, hey, I can't, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us today. And uh, a lot of great information, I think, for, uh, for our listeners, as well as uh, some, some really fun stories. Uh, and uh, here, here's to hoping you find those right recruits in, uh, in, a, in a year from today, uh, they get to hop into their, their, their warden vehicle and be out there protecting our fish, wildlife, and, and yeah. outdoor spaces. Yeah, let's hope so. Thank you very much, Peter, for the opportunity. It's it's been a this will be a big help for for that cause for sure. For maybe getting some people in the door, but otherwise, uh, reach out anytime, and maybe we can read uh, do this again. So, all right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a great right. day.